All right, so tonight we are talking about Jesus and Jesus in Genesis. We've been traveling through the book of Genesis for some time now, and tonight we are going to get into chapter 8 and chapter 9. We're still in the story of Noah. Uh, Eddie did a great job last week through three chapters, and he accomplished it in roughly 45 to 50 minutes. That was a miracle. So, Eddie, great job. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking about the noetic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah. Uh, And so, let's jump right in. We'll just travel through our verses, verse by verse, and we'll seek to make application and see what the Lord would have for us tonight. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And we'll stop there. And as we get to the next portion, uh, we we will go through that portion. So remember from last week, uh, the flood happens. God destroys all living creatures, uh, the, the wild animals and the domestic animals and all the people except for Noah and his three sons and their wives, eight people in all. And if you remember back to Genesis 6, the reason was is because the intentions and the thoughts of mankind were only evil continuously. It was a very wicked place to live on the earth in Genesis 6. And God decided, rightfully so, and he has the right to judge sin. He is the creator and sustainer of all life. Everything belongs to him. In fact, the psalmist says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all the people in it. Because he gives life and sustains life, we all owe him. And he owes no one anything. Let's keep that in mind. God is God. From him, through him, and back to him are all things. And so for God to judge sin, it is right. And for God to not judge you and I, it's called mercy. It's called grace. And that's what we get. We as Christians get the mercy and grace of God because we too, like the people in Noah's day, deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's wrath. And so Noah survives along with his three sons and their wives. And the first thing he does when he exits the ark is he builds an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. One uh, resource that I studied basically said this must have been an epic offering. I mean, think about that. Every clean animal and bird I mean, you talk about those Brazilian restaurants where you just keep the meat coming. It's like that. Like, give me that green paddle and just keep it coming. Every clean animal, whenever we're talking bear, we're talking badgers, we're talking, I mean, meat galore, right? And so I would have loved to have been there and just with my steak knife and my fork. But this is, this is 
a pattern now. We've seen this now three times. And we've highlighted this every time in Genesis. An offering, an offering, an offering, a sacrifice, a sacrifice, a sacrifice. Note, this is before the sacrificial system, right? Because that doesn't come until Moses. And Moses comes much later in redemptive history than Noah. And so here's the three places. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So animals had to die as a substitute sacrifice. And remember, the promise was you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will surely die. Satan comes along, deceives. You will surely not die because in the day you eat of it, God knows you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Our first parents trusted the lies of the snake, the serpent, that ancient uh, dragon, the devil. And instead of having faith in God's word, you will surely die. They put their faith in Satan's word. You will surely not die. And so they believed the lie instead of the truth. And God in mercy and grace should have, could have followed through and destroyed the human race right there and started anew, but he didn't. He showed mercy. He showed grace. And instead he puts forth a substitute, these animals that would then clothe Adam and Eve. And so, yes, he made them leather. You know, God was not a a PETA advocate, if you will. Okay. Uh, he's not a people either. He's God. So here, that's the first sacrifice. It's, it's a picture of substitution and it's the shedding of innocent blood. The animals didn't do anything. Adam and Eve were guilty yet. Another receives the punishment for their guilt. Okay. Now look what happens in Genesis four, three to four. You remember Cain and Abel in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. He was a farmer. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, that would be uh, an animal, a sheep or a goat, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And the question is, how, how did they know that they were supposed to be sacrificing? Like There was no Leviticus yet. Uh, and, and the answer is, well, Adam and Eve must have told them like, this is what we do for temporary forgiveness, for the covering of sin, uh, for an offering of guilt for our lives. We do this and God accepts our offerings, except for here, he accepted the blood sacrifice, but he did not accept the sacrifice from the ground, uh, the plants. However, I think it had more to do with Cain's heart than it did with it being plants and not an animal. However, Adam and Eve set this pattern of sacrifice, of substituting so that there might be life and forgiveness for the person. And then here, our text, Genesis 8.20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, this pattern will continue throughout the entire Old Testament until the sacrifice, Jesus, the ultimate substitute who would put an end to the sacrificial system. And you remember, even in history, uh, the temple, the Jerusalem temple where the sacrifices were offered was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and it has not been rebuilt since. 
That's God's providential power saying, we're done with the sacrificial system. Why? Because they all pointed to the sacrifice who would be the substitute for sin. Jesus Christ, the righteous, God become man, the substitute. And so all sacrifices, if you trace that line or theme of sacrifice, would land on Jesus. And now we as his people, what kind of sacrifice do we offer? That's right. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. Okay? We live for God now and we die to self. Right? We die daily to our sinful desires, our flesh, our sin that wants to overtake us and rule us. We say no and we die to self and we live for God. Okay? We day by day die. Put, Romans 8.13 says, by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. We live by the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to kill our sin and then to live for God. And so every day, it would be a, a great prayer to pray, God, kill my sin, enable me to fight my sin and to live for you. Fill me with your spirit that I might reject selfishness, that I might reject lust, that I might reject greed, that I might reject being rude. Because remember, rudeness in 1 Corinthians 13, is the opposite of love. And love is the second greatest commandment if we're talking about people, right? What's the greatest commandment, Jesus was asked? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then you read the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, and it's love is patient, love is kind. It's not envious, it doesn't boast, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking. And we're like, <laughs> do I love anyone ever? And if you do, it's in part partial and it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that, that we have any love. Okay, now that's going to fit with what we're going to talk about next. So keep that in mind. Okay, loving your neighbor as yourself. It is not rude. It's not envious. It doesn't boast. It's patient. It's kind. So friends, what does that mean? That means if you're rude to anyone, God would have something to say about that. Repent. Like that's a sin that Jesus had to die for, that these sacrifices are pointing forward towards. You're like, really? I have to stop being rude? That's terrible. <laughs> right? And for some of us, it's just a lifestyle. It's just the way we live. We're just, we're selfish and rude and it's just who we are. Well, Jesus would say, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you're in the kingdom, we live a life of repentance, which means killing your sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and then offering your body as a living sacrifice to God. That's the Christian life, friends. And the good news is we don't do it on our own strength and by our own power. God offers himself as the energy, as the source of power to enable you to love the way he expects you to love. What is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit? love. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live this way. And if you're not tapping into his power and you're frustrated with the Christian life, that's the reason. I can't do this. Right. On your own, by your strength, by your energy, you have nothing. That's what Jesus said. Without me, you can do nothing. 
You can't even love somebody without me. But with him, with his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, you can do all things through him who who strengthens you, right? Okay, let's move on. So Noah builds an altar to the Lord as a pattern all the way back to the first sacrifice of Adam and Eve, God sacrificing for them. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, like how many of you have driven past Texas Roadhouse and you're just like, oh, <laughs> that's, that's the idea. But God doesn't have a nose, does he? Because he's God. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so the Bible will do this. It, it's, it's called anthropomorphism. And what does it mean? It means attributing human characteristics to God. And so though God doesn't smell because he doesn't have a nose, that enables us to understand God in a way, right? Uh, God is, is unlike us in many ways. Those are called his uh, incommunicable attributes. That's what theologians would say. You're like, what does that mean? Well, that means there are certain things about God that he doesn't share with us, like his all-knowingness, omniscience or omniscience, his omnipresence, He's everywhere all at once. Like, we can't do that. We're localized. You're here, but you're also not at TGI Fridays eating, you know, fish filet, right? You're here. And so God is everywhere all at once, which blows our minds. He's, there's no part of space that God does not fill. In fact, everything finds its existence and presence in God, not the other way around. Like we often think about creation and the universe existing on its own and then God fills it. Rather, it's the other way around. Everything finds its existence in God. Let's not get it backwards. Because from him, through him, and back to him are all things. And so right now we are in God's presence. Right? We would say things like, oh God, we pray it. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. He's like, yeah, kind of. You're welcome here with me. But I get it. Like, I love that song. I'm not hating on that song. What we're saying is, God, our attitude, we want you here. There are people who don't want God in their presence. And God's like, bro, without me, you don't take your next breath. Right? Uh, and, and, and anyway, let's get back to Noah. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, so he's, he's speaking to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now, what does that mean? He's talking about the flood because he just flooded the entire earth. I, I won't do that again. For, now look at this. What's the reason? When we see a four, it's like because. It, wh why? The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now listen, the Bible shoots it straight. Uh, God, in some sense, in some sense, does not care if he hurts our feelings, okay? Uh, God is not troubled by offending us, okay? He speaks the truth, and then he says, I love you, but you need to reckon with this. You need to receive it. And now we should wrestle with things in the Bible because there's some hard stuff in there. And one of the hard things the Bible says is, all people are evil. You call them evil? No, God is. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just telling you what he says. Okay? Now, theologians call this total depravity, okay? meaning the totality of the human being is affected by sin. 
What it means is there's not one part of the human being that has not been touched by sin. The body, the mind, the emotions, the will. In our totality, we have been touched by sin. It does not mean that we're as bad as we could be, clearly. Right? We're all sitting here without killing each other. It's kind of amazing, right? We're all evil, but yet no one's trying to steal anybody's stuff. I hope not. Keep a close check on your pockets. Put your phone in your front pocket, not your back pocket. Some evil people in here, right? The idea here is that God overcomes our evil by the Spirit. But here, all people are evil. How is that possible? Here's how it's possible. Adam and Eve sinned. They were corrupt in their nature. And as they produced children, remember what happened to the next two people we know about on earth, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. Sin was passed down. Okay? And as the children of Adam and Eve continue to have children, they pass the sin nature down. There is not one person alive except for one. Guess who? That's right. 90% of the time, if you answer Jesus, you'll be right. 90% of the time. Yeah? Especially when I'm preaching. So yeah, Jesus, not born of a human father, right? because the Virgin Mary didn't have the sin nature passed down to him. Because it, it comes through the man. Remember, Adam was the one who intentionally sinned. And so through him, the sin nature, and through the, the father, the sin nature is passed down to the children, not the mother. And so what happens? Noah took his sin with him on the ark. And so did his three sons. And when they had kids, they repopulated the world with what? Sinners. And so this is what is meant here by God's like, all right, before the flood, every intention of the heart of man was only evil continuously, but here it's going to continue. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Couple verses, just a few. Okay, this is it. Psalm 51.5, David uh, writing this psalm as a repentant psalm. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that David's, David's not saying my mother conceived me in a sinful way. He was saying at conception, sin is passed down. So our children in the womb, you in the womb, sinner. Okay, that's, that's the deal. Isaiah 53, now listen, this is four verses out of hundreds I could have brought, okay, just four. Isaiah 53, 6, all, notice the all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, that's intentional, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the great Isaiah 53, prophecy about Jesus, the Lord's servants, and the laid on him, the iniquity of us all is Jesus on the cross. That's what this is about. How about Isaiah 64, six? We have all, all of us become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In the Hebrew, that is a menstruation cloth. And if you know anything about Leviticus, that was unclean like very unclean, okay, to, 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 to the Levitical Jew. So what is that saying? Every good thing you do, 
to God is a filthy rag. Why? Because everything we do flows out of our sin nature. You can't help but produce what you are. So even your good, remember earlier I said, uh, how many of you have ever loved anyone perfectly? And the answer is no, you haven't. Why? Because sin is involved and in the mix of everything. And this is why we need Jesus. Because even the good things we do will not be accepted by God. There's only one man who was not born with a sin nature who actually did righteous deeds that were acceptable to God. And his name is Jesus. And as the Isaiah 53 passage says, praise God, the Lord laid on him our iniquity, the sin of us all. All right, Romans 3, 10 and 11. Paul's just uh, going off here in Romans 3 to prove the sinfulness of all people. I just brought two verses of Romans 10. As it is written from the Psalms in Isaiah, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And verse after verse we could bring to kind of prove the point here. But how does God, how does Moses say it? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Okay? So if you don't think of yourself in this way, you should. You're not a good person. There are no good people. Now, if we want to measure on a human scale, well, sure, there are good people and bad people. And that's most of the time what we mean when we say, oh, he's a good guy. Compared to Hitler, he's a great guy. Right? On a human scale, we can measure each other by righteousness. But look, when you put yourself up against the standard who is God himself, everyone falls short. And isn't that what Romans says? We all fall short of the glory of God. And again, this is why we need Jesus. Jesus is not an option for the Christian faith. He is the center. He is essential. There is no Christianity without Him. This is why even the book of Genesis is constantly pointing forward to Jesus. We need a perfect sacrifice as a substitute for our sin. Why? Because the intention of our heart is evil from our youth. Now, let me, let me just parenthesis. Ready? When we are born again, John 3, 3, something new happens, right? This is what the Old Testament was pointing at in Ezekiel 36, 24 and forward. Here's how Ezekiel prophesied what would happen to new covenants people of God, us. Ready? I will take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit within them. I will put my spirit within them and I will cause them to walk in my ways. I will be the energy that enables them to do good. Now, remember earlier, we talked about us on our own not being able to do anything good. When God's Spirit comes in us and we live according to His energy and power, we can actually do some good. 
But as Jesus said in John 15, without Him, you can do nothing. Because all we have is that old sinful nature. And anything that comes out of that sinful nature is sin. Think of an orange tree, okay? Orange trees can only produce oranges. They'll never produce mangoes or grapes or apples. And so the sin nature can only produce sin. You need a new nature. And that's what God gives us. That's why Jesus said to, to, to Nicodemus, you must, must, not an option, you must be born again. Or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. What is the born again pointing to? Back to Ezekiel 36. You need a new heart. You need a new spirit. You need my spirit to cause you to walk in my ways, to offer your body as a living sacrifice. Friends, the Christian life is miraculous, meaning we can't do it without the intervention of God in our daily lives. We, we want to see dead people rise and we want to walk on water. Otherwise, it's not miraculous. Friends, if God breaks into your day, that's the sense in which I mean miraculous. And if you do anything good that God receives and accepts, it's a miracle in that sense. Because it's God breaking into your reality, moving through you, enabling you to do good. Now we have two paragraphs of Genesis 9, so I need to move on, okay? So let us move on. Then he says, neither will I ever, ever strike again, I'm sorry, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. This is a gift of God. He's setting up seasons and patterns and consistency. Right? Daylight savings, praise God, the last one today. Never again do we have to do that again. Okay? And, and why can we count on 6 a.m.-ish, sun's going to rise? Hey, why can we count on that? Why can we count on right around April, we're going to start seeing buds on trees and leaves on bushes in the northeast at least, and why can we count on about August, September-ish, apple picking in the orchard? Like year after year after year. Here it is. While the earth remains, God says, I'm going to create consistency. Seed time and harvest. There will be seasons for seeding and there will be seasons for harvesting the seed. There will be cold and heat, winter and summer. There will be winter summer and winter, day and night, and it shall not cease. This is God creating consistency in the seasons and in the days and nights. Genesis 9, 1 to 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. All right, let's stop there. Does anyone remember that being said before? Yes, it was a command to Adam and Eve. This is what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. So did God's plan get ruined by the flood? No. He's right back to his old plan. Noah, I want you and your wife and your sons and their wives, I want you to be fruitful. What does that look like? Multiply. Have babies. 
A lot of them. And I want you to fill the whole earth. And as you fill the earth, I want you to subdue the earth. You have dominion over the animals and you make it produce like the market district produce section. Like I want to see star fruits and dragon fruits and mangoes and grapes and tomatoes. And is anyone hungry? Zucchinis, all of it. I want to see plantains. And by the way, no, if you put some honey on those and put some cinnamon and dry them out, it's fire. It's fire, Noah, I'm telling you. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and every fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Now, there's a lot there, and I'm only going to spend a few minutes. What this means is, Praise God that God put us at the top of the food chain. Okay? When, when a groundhog or a raccoon sees you, normally they're out. Good thing they don't go, hey, and call up all their buddies. <laughs> Some dinner over there. Let's get them, right? Because we'd be running from deer and we'd be running from badgers and we'd be running from wolverines. And yeah, you should run from those, okay? But the idea here is God is... God is putting us at the top of the food chain and we are the one that all the rest of creation fears. Now, this is to the dismay of my daughter because she would just lo- like, like Snow White with all the animals gathered around her. Like sh- she would be the one to take in all the birds and all you know, the baby bunnies, and, but instead they run from her. The squirrels take off. You know, she's chasing them, hoping to get a little pet in. They're like, I'm out. But imagine the opposite, right? Like imagine if the squirrels were like acorns, you know, just (laughs) praise God. They're afraid of us, right? Because we could go out of our house and sit and have, you know, lunch on the deck without getting attacked by the birds. It's great. This is a gift from God. Okay, so everything is delivered into our hands. Now, listen. Those who are not of a biblical worldview would have you think that you are on par with the rest of creation. In fact, some would have the whales and the eagles and the rare lizards be more valuable than you. But that's not what God would say. Human beings are the most important of his creation and everything else is lesser creation. Get that drilled in your mind. Okay? Nothing is more important than a human being. Why? Because we are made in God's image. Now look at verse 3. I love verse 3. It's one of my favorite verses in Genesis 9. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Yes. Love it. Shrimp, venison, veal, you name it, baby. Schnitzel. I love schnitzel, man. That hammered flat chicken and veal. It's a little bit of caper on that. Oh, capes, crepes. What do you call those things? Capes? Anyway, I'm hungry. I didn't eat dinner, as you can tell. I'm ready for some Pamela's pancakes right now. Let's go. So, so we have permission as human beings to eat any animal we'd like. Okay? Anyone ever have shark? I have. It's, it's Okay rather have salmon or tuna, but it's all right. Okay? They try to eat you, you should get some revenge. You should eat some shark sometime. Okay? 
And then look at this. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And so God gives us all things to use for our benefit. It's all under our dominion. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion. It's all yours for the using. Now, we're the ones who take it and sin with it. Like, did you know that you can go into any of the brand new marijuana dispensaries in Pittsburgh and and there's no sin in there? Like, you can go into the liquor store and it's not a den of iniquity. It's just fermented different kinds of fruit juice and potatoes and sugar cane. It's you that have the sin. And it's the problem of us taking God's good creation, perverting it or twisting it, and then using it for sinful purposes. Right? The, the, the painkiller is good for the person that just had surgery. Praise God for painkiller. But for the drug addict snorting it, that's a sin against God. Same thing. What's, what are you using it for? Okay? And so we could, we could do a whole series on that, but, but we're not. So God gives everything to us to use for good purposes, but not for sin. Okay? We find a way to turn everything into an opportunity for sin. That's what we do. Okay? Doesn't matter what it is. Why? Because the sin's in us. But, verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, all right, let's stop there. I don't think he's saying you can't eat medium rare to rare steak. It's not what he's saying. And if he is, I'm in trouble. Okay? I don't think he's saying you can't ever have sushi. Like, no sushi for you. No, what he's saying is, we just keep talking about food, huh? It's in the text, okay? What he's saying is, in, remember, who wrote Genesis. Moses. At the time that Moses wrote, there were all kinds of pagan religions that would literally drink blood and would use blood in their worship. And God's saying, you don't worship me like that. And we don't participate at the table of demons and worship like the pagans worship their demon gods. And so he's not saying, hey, you better eat that thing medium well to well. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, you don't drink blood. You don't consume blood. That's not the point, okay? It's not the point. Uh, and, and here's the reason. Uh, blood symbolizes life, okay? We, we could do a whole theology of that. Uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so the shedding of blood in the Bible as a sacrifice is atonement. And ultimately, the blood of Jesus, which we just sang about, would be what washes us of all our sin. Okay? It's a symbol of life. So we're not to consume it. And for your life, blood, verse 5, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his image. Okay, now, what theologians are going to point out here is that this is the establishment 
of the authority of government to enforce laws and capital punishment. I know capital punishment's a big no-no for us in America, but for God, read it. Okay? You kill someone else, you should be killed. Not by the, not by the family members. Right? He's not talking about uh, you have the right to go avenge. No, no. This is the authorizing of government and courts and the whole system to be able to make laws and enforce them, even with the death penalty. Now, we have a, we have a couple books back there. If you're interested in that, uh, How the Nations Rage by Jonathan Lehman, he talks about this extensively uh, in that book on, in the bookstore. Uh, how government is set up by God here in verses five and six, uh, how it's the, the establishment, if you will, of government. Remember, it's only Noah and his three sons and then their wives. There's only eight people at this point. And so he's setting up law and order. Yes, that's what he's doing. And he's saying there will be punishment or there should be punishment for anyone who violates another human being, especially the shedding of blood. Okay. Why? Because people are made in God's image. And when you assault the image of God, in some sense, you are assaulting God. Every human being has dignity, value, and worth for one reason, God's image. And every single person from conception to their last breath is in the image of God. That's why we should be about life and the protection of it, because God is. Right? So you read Romans 13, 1 to 7, it's the, it's the longest and most clear text on government and God authorizing government. He, he even calls government uh, his servant to avenge, to, to have the sword not in vain. Okay. Go home and read it. Verse 7. And you, Noah, you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. All right, this is the last section and we're done. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. What's a covenant? Covenant is a promise. A covenant is like a contract, but not like a contract. Okay? And here, God is establishing an order or a promise with Noah. Noahic covenant, this is called. And he's saying, with you and your offspring, I'm making a promise. And now here's what it's going to look like. With you, verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you, all the animals you brought on the ark, with the birds, with the livestock, with every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Okay, so it's not only for man, this covenant, it's also for the beasts and for the birds. What is the covenant? Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. This is it. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, we've seen floods. There's floods in California right now. Okay? We're talking about a worldwide flood to literally wipe out all living things except for those saved by the ark. And God says, I'm never going to do that again. One water judgment for the whole world. That's it. And then he says, this is the sign of the covenant. Often, God will give a sign of the covenant. You remember the, the, the sign for Abraham was what? 
circumcision, right? There's a sign. What's the sign for the noetic, noetic covenant? It's for, it's between me and you, every living creature that is with you, and for all future generations. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud. It's the rainbow. And it shall be a sign, a sign of the covenant, between me and the earth, meaning the people and the animals and the birds. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. So God promises here, I'm never going to destroy the earth by water again and wipe out all living things. How many of you have ever read 2 Peter 3, where God does say how He's going to destroy the earth again in future judgment? Anyone ever read that? Because we are told what the next worldwide judgment's going to look like. It's not water. It's fire. Scoffers is the they here. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? Where's he at? He said he was going to come a long time ago. For ever since the fathers fell asleep. Remember, see the quotes here? So he's quoting a, a, a skeptic. He's quoting uh, a scoffer here. Peter is. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. God's not coming back. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact. What's the fact? Notice the deliberately overlook. Like they ignore this. Purposefully, <laughs> they ignore this. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's pointing to the creation. Okay? And that by means of these, the water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Talking about the flood. Verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So he's talking to Christians. Don't, don't overlook this fact, Christians. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. Now for us, a thousand years, that, that's almost inconceivable. You know, we, none of us have even been alive for a hundred. A lot of us, not even 50. So we can't imagine a thousand years. Remember, God is eternally existent outside in some way of time and space itself. And so here Peter is quoting Psalm 90 verse 4, the Psalm of Moses, 
Moses said this first, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. One watch in the night. And so what, what Peter is saying here is, look, God's not slow. You got to remember that. Because to him, one day could be like a thousand years. And to him, a thousand years could be like one day. He's not on your timetable. He is not called the ancient of days for no reason. He is God. He is the ancient one. He is the source of all things. And so, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Like we should not be named among them that count slowness as these others do. But, now I love this, look, he is patient toward you. So what is God like? Our God is a patient God. Isn't that good news? He is patient. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, Repentance, turning from sin, turning to Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin. And He is patiently not judging or destroying all the world because primarily the world is filled with unbelievers who will be judged. Okay? And so God is being patient, especially with His own who will come to repentance. All His will come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When do thieves come? When you're not expecting it, when you're not looking for them, when you're often away on vacation or at work. Okay? The Lord will come like a thief and then... Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Okay? Now, that could be symbolic language. I just want to put that option out there. Or it could be literal. That God is literally going to melt everything down. But if He does, it will be to remake it anew which is the promise. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, where there is no sin, where there is only good and no death and no depression and no sadness and no tears and only joy and happiness and fulfillment forever. And so here's, here's one idea I've had. Anyone ever been to Hawaii? Awesome. I, I would, I'm wanting to get there someday. Okay. What is Hawaii made of? Yeah, it, it's just volcanic soil, right? And, and is it not one of the most, right, like lush vegetation flourishing places on the planet? I mean, it's just green all the time. So what if God here just flips the earth inside out. Because you know we're on a big ball of lava, right? Like we're just, we're on top of molten rock and lava right now. We don't think about that often, but you know, that's just a little spout, the volcano in which it comes out. But man, if, if God could do that and make Hawaii and, and the tropical islands, what if he just, I'm going to burn the whole thing up. I'm going to flip the world inside out and then I'll make it anew. Because he flooded the whole thing at one point with water. And here he's saying he's going to do it with fire. And it will be a judgment. Now, when you trace fire throughout the Bible, it is symbolizing judgment. 
in trial and trouble, trial by fire. So it could be, it could be literal, could be figurative. Either way, judgment is coming. Be assured of it. And just because it hasn't happened yet, remember what Peter said. Look, don't, don't call slowness as some count because you're dealing with the Ancient of Days here. You're dealing with the Lord of glory. And to Him, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day in His sight. And so, here's my encouragement, friends. You don't want to get swept up in this judgment. And there's one way of escape. There was one who already got swept up in the judgment of God for you. What's his name? That's right. Jesus went through the fire already so that you don't have to. He was already burned to bits, if you will. And there was no life left in him because God's judgment landed on him instead of you. And if you're a Christian, there is no judgment left for you. That's the good news is that Christians await the day of the Lord. We are told to pray in Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come. But His coming will mean judgment. But we are safe and secure because He has already been judged for us. And so we're safe and hidden in Christ. Why? Because on the cross, He already took our judgment. And so we can say, come and judge. Why? Because we've already been judged. And in Christ, we are forgiven. We are righteous in Him. The positive side of the cross is we get the righteousness of Jesus given to us as a gift. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we in Him might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And so my encouragement to you, friends, is if you don't know Jesus savingly tonight, don't waste any more time. Don't. Don't play with God. He holds your very breath. He holds your life in the palm of His hands. And so, don't stiff arm Him. Don't be obstinate and hard-hearted towards Him. Open yourself up to Him. He is the source of all goodness, all life, all love. And He promises that when you do receive Him, He will fill you with His very Spirit. And He will live through you to bless others. Alright, we're going to celebrate communion. And we celebrate what's called the New Covenant. What's the sign of the New Covenant? Well, Jesus told us. This cup and my body are a New Covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we take communion every single week at Eternal City Church, we are taking the sign of the covenant that Jesus will be our substitute and sacrifice. And we take it into our bodies week after week after week. We rehearse the sign of the new covenant every single week. And so if you're in this new covenant, if you're in this new promise sealed by Jesus' blood, one of forgiveness and life and being among the people of God. If you're in that covenant, we would encourage you, take communion with us. If you don't know what I'm talking about tonight, if, if you are not experientially forgiven, 
If you do not know Jesus as Savior, we would encourage you, don't take communion tonight. Why? Because it's a symbol or a sign of the covenant. And if you're not in the covenant or if you don't have the reality, don't take the sign or symbol of it. Just wait. But if you want to be in that covenant, if you want to come to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, if you want to be a part of his people, ask him for forgiveness. Turn from your sin and ask him to forgive you. And he will. He is a merciful and gracious Lord. And then take communion with us as a new Christian. Thanks for taking a minute to watch this video. My name is Pastor Chris Moran. I'm one of the pastors at Eternal City Church in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania. Eternal City is a church that values biblical authority. We teach the Bible verse by verse, week by week, and we are seeking to eventually preach the whole way through the Bible. We believe that Jesus is God as he claimed to be, and his person and work are the center of the entire Bible. We believe that the Great Commission is still relevant today for Christians, that Christians are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded. Eternal City is a church that values diversity in that we are a church of all kinds of people, cultures, classes, colors, and capacity. We are a church that values community and we seek to see our members hold one another accountable and build each other up in discipleship. We are a church that has a plurality of leadership for pastors and deacons who are servants who serve under the pastors. If this sounds like an interesting church to you, we would love for you to visit our website to find out more about us, eternalcity.org, or come visit us on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m., 1300 Swissville Avenue, Wilkinsburg, PA, 15221. Hope to see you soon.